I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello and welcome to Coronapod, once again a standalone show. Now, this isn't going to last. This week we're publishing it separately because the regular Nature podcast is all specially themed around surveillance. But we didn't want to deprive you of the latest coronavirus news, especially seeing as there's so much going on right now. You've got me, Noah Baker, on my own, but I'm joined by someone who's fast becoming a Coronapod favourite this week, Heidi Ledford. Heidi, how are you doing? (laughs) I'm fine, thank you. So on this show, we're going to talk about a couple of things which maybe are cause to smile, which is not something that we do very often on Coronapod, if I'm honest. One thing which we'll get to later is the latest vaccine results. But first, I want to talk about something which is both encouraging, but also complex to understand. And that is that the global death rate from coronavirus seems to be falling across the world. Can you tell me a little bit more about what that means? Because I know I've just made a blanket statement, which isn't necessarily as clear as I have just made it sound. Well, I mean, it's looking like it's a pretty accurate statement, right? It's a hard thing to calculate, it turns out. But yeah, so for months, we've been hearing anecdotal reports, particularly from ICU physicians who've been saying, you know, it looks like death rates are going down from COVID. Our patients are surviving at higher rates and so on. But it's taken a little while to really gather data and and pick apart that data. As that data is coming in and the data sets are getting bigger and bigger, it is looking like there are more people who are surviving from COVID-19 than we had in the early days of the pandemic. I guess it's important to mention at this point that what we don't mean is that people are no longer getting infected. And also what we don't mean is that people are no longer dying. It's just the rate of people dying from infections is changing. That's right. And it's it's really important, I think, to make that point, because another thing is that it doesn't in any way mean that you shouldn't wear a mask or socially distance or, or care about slowing down the spread of the virus. That's absolutely not the case. And in fact, if anything, it's sort of could be taken to argue in favor of those measures, because one of the reasons that people say over and over again could be a reason for why these death rates are going down is because in many countries, the healthcare systems are not as overwhelmed as they were in the early days of the pandemic. So if you, you know, as those of us in the Northern Hemisphere are, are heading into the winter and looking at potential surges or, or entering our surges, and we're looking down the barrel again of these healthcare system, you know, overloads, Uh, I think that's really something to bear in mind. That can form the basis of a lot of what we can talk about now is why we might see these sort of declines in death rates. And one thing, as you've said, is, you know, when healthcare systems aren't overloaded, they are more able to cope with what comes in. But there are also other suggestions. And one thing people might jump to is that new drugs are available, 
that actually may not be a particularly good explanation for why death rates are lowered. Tell me a bit more about drugs. Yeah, I mean, I think we've heard a lot about potential therapies over the past few months, and there's been a lot of excitement about different avenues and different ways of treating people with COVID-19. And I mean, the hard truth of it is that a lot of possible therapies that were given a lot of attention in the early days of the pandemic haven't worked out. I mean, in the end, the only therapy that we've seen that's really been repeatedly shown to reduce death rates is steroid treatment. So treatment with low doses of steroids like dexamethasone given to people who are already quite ill, who are who need supplemental oxygen, that has been shown to reduce the likelihood that they'll die of COVID-19. But everything else has fallen short, really. I mean, if you think back to some of the more controversial possible treatments like hydroxychloroquine, which was advocated by a lot of politicians, um, you know, in the end, did not pan out in rigorous clinical trials. And you can even think about remdesivir, for example, which was one of the first drugs that really seemed to be showing some benefit for patients with COVID-19 in a large, you know, well-designed clinical trial. But that trial showed that it reduced hospital stays by a few days. It didn't show an impact on mortality. It wasn't designed to show an impact on mortality. Uh, Unfortunately, after that, there have been trials that were designed to look at an impact on mortality, and they didn't see one. So there's a lot of debate right now about what role remdesivir really has to play, I guess, in the treatment of people with COVID-19. But yeah, over and over again, I think we've we've sort of had our hopes dashed, <laughs> to be honest, uh, when it comes to a lot of these different therapies. When President Trump fell ill with COVID-19, there was a lot of talk again about the various different therapies that were available, the new therapies, not least because it seems that he had all of them. <laughs> Uh, And one thing was antibody cocktails that he was given from Regeneron. But again, the suggestion is maybe these antibody cocktails could be useful, but maybe in milder cases, not necessarily in severe cases of COVID. Yeah, I mean, that is where most of the hope for these antibody cocktails lies now. There have been a couple of trials that actually were stopped in patients with more severe disease because they, they didn't really seem to be showing any benefit. But I think always... The expectation for those antibody cocktails probably really was always that it would be more of an early intervention rather than a later intervention. So far, you know, there are early studies of those and they suggest that, you know, maybe they're reducing some viral shedding, maybe they're reducing some symptoms in these people who are, you know, with, who have mild infections. But, you know, there's no, there's certainly nothing, no indication of an impact on death rates yet with those. Having said that, that doesn't mean that clinical care hasn't improved. And there are lots of ways in which clinical care could also improve, which could potentially lead to the falling death rates that we're seeing. Yeah, it's true. I mean, I think it's sort of interesting when you talk to uh, physicians who've been working with intensive care patients for a long time, and particularly those who who are experiencing acute respiratory distress of some sort, you know, they they weren't very surprised to see these potential therapies fall by the wayside. They said, you know, we've tested those before. Some of them have been tested before in patients who are really struggling to breathe. But that doesn't mean that you know there aren't ways to improve care. They're just maybe a bit less sexy. So it could be things like you know the right timing of when to put patients on ventilators, the right timing of steroids, which was again you know something that we found as one useful intervention. Um, there's been a lot of talk about you know maybe we should turn patients onto their stomachs to sort of increase their lung capacity at an earlier stage than we normally would. There are ways to tweak the sort of day-to-day aspects of critical care. 
There was also, you know, in the early days in, in many countries, you had hospitals who had to recruit physicians and nurses from other areas in the hospital to the intensive care units, and they weren't used to working there. And they're certainly very capable physicians and nurses, but they just weren't used to the sort of pattern recognition that you might find among experienced, you know, seasoned ICU nurses and doctors and so on. Absolutely. And I guess there's also a case of looking back at the statistics. And as so often is the case with statistics, the devil's in the details. So for example, if you look at the demographics of people going into ICUs, now there are younger people that are arriving, which we know are less likely to develop severe COVID. And so if you skew younger as the time goes on, then you would expect your death rates to fall. Yeah, you have to be really careful when you look at these numbers. And that's one reason why it's taken a little time for the data to really catch up with the anecdotes. Because you do have these demographic changes over time, and you've got to sort of factor that in. You know, are you really seeing improved care? Or are you just seeing a different demographic of people becoming sick? People are starting to pick apart that data now. And as the data sets get bigger, it's sort of easier to rule out the impact of age and comorbidities and things like that. There are people who have done that and they are still seeing a decline in the mortality rate. So you've written a feature about this falling mortality rate and all of the myriad of ways in which you can sort of slice this pie. But one thing that really stood out to me when I was reading your feature was this concept that at the beginning of the pandemic, this was a new disease. There was a lot of talk about this is a novel disease and we don't know anything about it. And maybe there was a tendency for people and clinicians to react by looking for the experimental drug, for the new way, for the new this, for the new that, because this was so unusual. When in fact, maybe the solution so far has been much more about let's just, you know, employ long understood techniques have been developed over decades of studying, you know, acute respiratory conditions, because that really ultimately is what COVID-19 still is. Yeah, I mean, that is, you know, you may have some differences uh, from COVID-19 compared to, you know, other sources of acute respiratory distress and so forth. So it's good to study these things, but it's, I, you know, yeah, I think you've gotten the the point that a lot of people have made to me over and over again. I feel like this pandemic has been a crash course in understanding the importance of high quality clinical data, you know, not just a small observational study, not just, you know, your own emotional reaction to seeing a patient struggling and wanting to intervene in any way that you can, which is absolutely understandable, but is sort of an emotional response that needs to be viewed as an emotional response. And in the end, if there is clinical data that you can rely on, then maybe fall back on the things that have been shown. Test your experimental therapies, but do them in the context of a well-designed clinical trial. That's been a big lesson, I think, from the pandemic. There was a, a really engaging quote in your feature from an intensive care specialist in Amsterdam called Marcus Schultz. And he said, in just half a year, I think we've repeated 20 years of research into acute respiratory distress, everything was done again, and everything came up with the same result. I mean, and that was not just him, that was several people, you know, told me that it's something I've seen over and over again, that a lot of people will say, Oh, my God, this is so surprising. This is so different. This is so new. But then if you go and you talk to, for example, a viral immunologist, they'll say, Oh, nope, nope, that's what you see, you know, with an infection like this. Or if you go to someone who cares for, you know, people in intensive care, you know, it's, nope, that's what we need to do. Yep, no, we've seen this, you know, it's been also a good crash course, I think, in sourcing. Don't just talk to an immunologist, talk to a viral immunologist. <laughs> Don't just talk to a physician, talk to a critical care physician, <laughs> that kind of thing. Yeah, those specialisms make all the difference. They really do. Yeah, they do. 
I'm going to ask you, I guess, now to speculate a little bit, but what do you think this means for the pandemic? Would you be willing to sort of give us an, an indication of what falling death rates for all the various reasons that we've discussed might mean for the next year or so? Well, it's all a bit confounded too, because I guess we're getting quite hopeful about vaccines. You know, I still look at this and say, that prevention is really key. And if we've learned anything, maybe it's that there's no apparent silver bullet, which is a cliche, but one that gets used a lot, I think, in this context, that there's no obvious miracle drug. And we're going to have to continue these prevention measures to try to slow down the spread as much as we can until we find something that really moves the needle. Now, you've mentioned, you know, one of the other silver bullets, I suppose, that people talk about, which is the vaccine. And this has been a big week for vaccines, or it feels like it's been a big week, maybe just because we've all been sort of at the top of our anxiety level for months waiting for something to be said about vaccines. But this week, you know, there has been the third result from a vaccine trial. The first was from Pfizer and BioNTech. The second was from a somewhat controversial vaccine called Sputnik V from Russia. And now a third vaccine result has come out from a preliminary study, which is from the company Moderna. And that's suggesting that they've got a vaccine which has 94% efficacy, which they can report after the first 95 cases in their trial feeling positive about this? Well, my disclaimer on this, I think, is that I haven't covered vaccine development as closely as some of our colleagues have, particularly when it comes to COVID-19. But what I can say is that, you know, I've covered drug development over the past 10 plus years, I guess. And one thing you learn very quickly when you study drug development is to be a pessimist. And I honestly, you know, I just never thought these numbers would be that high. I mean, there are so many caveats still and so many things we still need to know, so many reasons to not consider this a done deal yet. We don't know how long the immunity lasts. We don't know you know, how well it's going to work in really key subpopulations such as the elderly or the obese. There are all sorts of questions that still remain. But I guess for me, I just didn't expect to be facing those caveats from such an excellent position. You know, it's not another flu vaccine, right? Like this is a novel vaccine against a novel virus using technology that we don't have a ton of experience with in terms of vaccine development. So I honestly, I thought if it worked at all, it would barely squeak by with, you know, maybe 50% efficacy or something like that. And then we would have to, you know, figure out what that meant from there. So, you know, I I realize it's not a done deal and I I don't want to overhype it, but I will just say that I was... I, I felt this strange feeling and I realized it was hope, you know, and it was uh, it was nice to be surprised in that way. I started to think, I started to let myself think that, you know what, maybe next summer I'm going to get to go back to the United States and visit my parents again. That's what I, I guess that's what I started to think. Yeah, I agree. I mean, we talked about the, the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine and those results last week on Chronopod. And this new announcement from Moderna, you know, there actually are some more answers in that that we said were missing from the previous press release. So Pfizer notably didn't include any data about the severity of the cases of COVID that had come up. They also didn't include any data about um, how many COVID cases were in the placebo arm, whereas Moderna's released a little bit more data. They have said that there were 11 cases of severe COVID within the 95 cases that they've had, and all 11 of those cases were in the placebo arm. You know, that is a significant piece of information. It's still very preliminary. It's still very early, but it is significant. 
And on top of that, there are other things, I suppose, right? So, you know, the Moderna vaccine only needs to be kept at minus 20-ish degrees. So it could be kept in a, you know, in a regular freezer, unlike the Pfizer vaccine, which needs to be stored at minus 70. And the Moderna vaccine can last for a month in a regular refrigerator. Again, these things are really important when it comes to distribution of the vaccine. So, you know, there's, there's hints, there's steps. However, still very, very early days. And we need to, like, not count those chickens right now. That's right. You know, when you mentioned the 11 cases, and that's, you know, that is good data. It's good to have that data, but it is a reminder of how small the numbers are in the end, you know, <laughs> with these trials are so big, tens of thousands of people. And then in the end, we're looking at, you know, oh, there's a hundred something infections and, you know, it's it ends up being quite small, but that's the nature of vaccine development. I don't think we have to get into that. Absolutely. Well, time will tell, I suppose. And in the meantime, three reasons to feel positive. Four, if you include falling death rates, this week. And I think we need reasons to feel positive. That strange feeling that you'd forgotten called hope. Okay, thank you so much, um, Heidi. I'm sure you're going to... I just nearly called you vaccine there. Thank you so much, vaccine. So I'll start again. (laughs) I don't think that's a nickname I want. (laughs) No, I know. Apologies about that. Vax. Vax might be kind of cool. This is pretty cool. I think my daughter would like them. Okay, well, thank you so much, Heidi. I'm sure before long you will appear again in our listeners' ears on Coronapod. Um, But for now, I hope you continue to feel hopeful. (laughs) Thank you for that, Noah. I do too. If you want to hear more about death rates or the latest on vaccines, then we've got loads of articles that you can check out over at nature.com forward slash news. We'll put links to a selection in the show notes. Do follow us there and you'll get the latest from Heidi, from Ewan, from lots of our other expert reporters who are bringing you this information as quickly as they can gather it. We'll be back in the main show next week with the Coronapod segment. You can find that wherever you found this on all the usual podcatchers. If you have any thoughts about the show, we'd love to hear from you. You can get in touch on Twitter, at Nature Podcast, or on email, podcast at nature.com. But for now, that's it from me, Noah Baker, and I'll be back next week on the main show with more coronavirus news. Stay safe. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.